the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. What to say, what to say. That often is the challenge for a lot of believers as we are sharing our faith with others. Now, we know certainly that there's um, uh, sort of a dualistic component when it comes to uh, the whole matter of being a Christian. Certainly, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and our neighbor is ourself. And we are also to go and to share the good news of this gospel into all of the world. Uh, the great commandment and the great commission. And yet, for a lot of us, uh, the great Greek um, commandment, yeah, we, we can do okay with that, but we find ourselves oftentimes challenged, particularly in this day and age, in uh, fulfilling our responsibility in partaking in the sharing of the Great Commission. Um, that sense of uh, sharing your faith with someone who wishes to be combative, they want to get into an argument with you, you are fearful perhaps because you just don't want confrontation, you've never experienced sharing your faith with someone before, and you're afraid to open up the proverbial can of worms because there's this atheist uh, in the next cubicle that's just been dying to pick a fight with you. How do you go about sharing your faith under these circumstances, particularly in a region like the San Francisco Bay Area where we are wrought with paganism and atheism and doubt and those that would feel as if anybody who believes in Christianity or the Jesus of the Bible must clearly be nuts. Well, Donald Johnson joins us to offer insights. He's written a new book called How to Talk to a Skeptic, an easy-to-follow guide for natural conversations and effective apologetics. And, Donald, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks for having me, Craig. I appreciate it. You come at this from a very rich educational background. I'll mention for the benefit of listeners, you have a B.A. in theology um, from San Jose Christian College. So you've been here in the Bay Area, an M.A. in Christian apologetics from Biola University and an M.A. in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville. So you've you've gone to some pretty well-known schools and received quite the deep education. Now, sharing this whole topic of apologetics, some Christians hear that and they kind of get put off and they go, oh, that's for an expert. That is for somebody like Hank Hanegraaff or um, somebody like a Donald Johnson to engage in. I, as just the everyday average Christian, can't possibly be expected to engage a skeptic in some discourse of Christian apologetics, can I? <laughs> well, I think if you approached it that way, that you have to have the big uh, education 
Um, yeah, you're right. We probably wouldn't, and that's one of the uh, problems. But no, I wrote the book specifically to address people who don't have the education, who uh, don't necessarily have the conversational debating skills of a William Lane Craig or someone like that. They're not interested in getting into the combative argument. Uh, no, this is this is for people who you know have that uncle who comes over on Thanksgiving and has a lot of questions, or that coworker. And it's specifically addressed to show you that, yeah, you can have a constructive conversation with even the most uh, hardened skeptic. And I guess at the end of the day, Don, this is not really about engaging in debate um, or demonstrating our um, uh, verbal skills at confrontation. Uh, it really comes down to that core issue of being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Craig. That's exactly when I think of apologetics. It's First Peter 3.15. It's the verse you just quoted. It's just having um, good questions and then the good answer, the, uh, the, the understanding of the Jesus story that you can share with people, but doing it in a way that's not going to lead to a dead end. So what is it about us as Christians, particularly in this day and age, and you've spent a good time here in the San Francisco Bay Area, so you're fully aware of, of some of the, the intellectual prowess of our Bay Area, here who uh, tend to um, uh, celebrate paganism and uh, atheism and and uh, love to engage in barbed uh, debate with Christians and, and, and tear us down. Does some of this fear come out of a sense that, well, we, we're trying to avoid confrontation, um, we're, we're concerned we won't be able to articulately respond to their questions or their comments and, and maybe a good dose of our own sense of anxieties in all of this. I just wonder how much of this goes to just the heart of a lot of believers today being uh, biblically illiterate and, and finding themselves and feeling themselves unprepared to share their faith. Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is that we don't feel like we have those answers. But on the other hand, it's partially, I think, some mistakes that we make in approaching the skeptic that leads us into that defensive position. So, I mean, we're scared that we're not going to have the right answer. But I think in my approach, I've learned over the years, I mean, I used to be that guy. I used to be that guy who just liked to debate and always tried to have just the right answer and just the right comeback at, at the right time. And I learned over the years that doesn't actually usually end very well. You usually end up in a roadblock. And so now I... I stand back a little bit and ask a lot of questions at the beginning and try to listen a lot and move the, the conversation in a direction where you're not on the defensive all the time and you don't have to have all those answers. And you're actually trying to get the skeptic to do the thinking and to have some answers for their own views and how they understand the world and how they understand Christianity. So it's not so much... You're right. It's not so much that it's a battle between two people, but a constructive relationship-building conversation where both sides have to add something to the mix. Sadly, oftentimes these kinds of conversations end up in one feeling as if they have to defend the faith, meaning they're 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 put on the defensive, and so here we might feel um, wholly short answer challenges concerning uh, certain scientific points or uh, points related to uh, observations about so-called uh, errancy in scripture, things of this sort. I mean, oftentimes we'll see this sort of distilled distilled down by some as a debate between um, faith or science, for example, or or 
the rational or irrational. So you're, you're not suggesting that we, we engage to set ourselves up for debate, but rather, what, engage a person? Is this as much about sharing our faith? Is it also getting the person that we're talking to to get them to share their heart and where they're coming from? Yeah, I think that's the key is, first of all, to, to understand where they're coming from. And so on two levels, well, really on three levels, I ask them what kind of background they have. You know, tell me a little bit about your life and if you have any experience in Christianity or the church. And then I ask them what they think uh, to be true about the world as far as uh, how do you answer the big questions of life. I understand that you reject Christianity. Okay, tell me what you do accept, though. Give me a positive case for something that you think is actually true, not just what you think is false. And then I ask them what they think Christianity actually teaches. And I think if you set out your conversation just just trying to find out those three uh, facts about the person in a very relational way and doing a lot of listening and not not defending Christianity at all, not jumping in when they throw an objection or or some sort of uh, sarcastic comment, you know, just just let that go and just listen. And what ends up happening is you can develop a comparison of worldviews. So way down the line, after you've learned a lot about the person, it's it's given you a chance to then compare the Christianity that you know to be true from the Bible with their worldview and the Christianity they hold. And and you'll inevitably find out that they don't hold to the Christianity that you do, that they're rejecting a, a, a straw man argument or they're just a caricature of what the Bible teaches. And when you set it up like that, you ask a few questions, you set up a comparison of worldviews, it actually does give you a chance to come in and then share the gospel, but not in a preachy way. You're just clarifying what Christianity actually teaches. You can say, oh, well, that's interesting. I understand where you're coming from, but let me share with you how I understand the Bible and how I understand Christianity. And then we can uh, we can talk on that level so it's a lot of clarification and sharing the bio, or sharing the gospel then in a non-confrontational very relational way you use a word that i want to have you elaborate upon when we return after a time out you use the word relational and i think there can be some important insights and keys extracted from this one word as we talk about how to talk to a skeptic my guest is donald day johnson this is his new book by the way newly published by to put my cheaters on here, Bethany House, and you'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Jarrell is laughing in there. Hey, you reach a certain age, kiddo, you know, you, you got to put the cheaters on. Also, the book available through Amazon.com, and uh, we'll share more in our conversation. Dig a bit deeper into this topic. How do you go about successfully sharing your faith, giving that answer for the hope that lies within as you talk to a skeptic? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson with us tonight. A look at his new book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. Now, you used a word just before the break, um, Donald, that perhaps really brings this down into a core perspective that all of us need to keep in mind when we're sharing our faith with somebody else. You use the word relational or relationship and at the end of the day that's really what this is about isn't it i mean we're, we're engaging in a relationship with another person as we are sharing our faith as we talk about what our relationship with jesus christ in the hope of what that someday they too will also enjoy a relationship with jesus christ makes it a lot less intimidating that way if you put it in those terms doesn't it yeah you're absolutely right craig that skeptics don't want 
to think of themselves as a project. And if they get the sense that the Christian views them as a project, someone to uh, defeat in a debate or even someone to get saved or, you know, an impersonal project, and that's not going to work. And so it's really important that we do sort of look at our own hearts and when we, you know, the guy in the cubicle next next to us, we do have to see him as someone loved by God and who God wants to spend eternity with, right? And so, yeah, the, the, the goal of every conversation has to be the sharing of God's love, not in a non-intellectual way. I mean, I, I know some people talk about, well, you know, you just love people till they ask you why and this sort of thing, and that's good as far as it goes. But on the other hand, I think providing answers and being able to direct the conversation in a way that clarifies the gospel for that person and gives that person's re- gives that person reason to believe, that is also loving the person. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's all relational. I think, I mean, ultimately, God is love. I mean, love, I've got a chapter on that. That's a, love is the meaning of life. I mean, that's what it's all about. And so, yeah, we, we really do need to be loving the whatever skeptics we run into. It would be curious to see if in a study has ever been done, and I would suspect that somebody like George Barna probably has this somewhere in his library of research, of how many people uh, that we come across that may object to Christianity or put up major roadblocks to faith because they themselves um, come from a quote-unquote former religious background and maybe had some ill experience uh, at a church somewhere or um, you know just unfortunate religious experience that somehow has turned them off to their faith and therefore they become a, a staunch defender of atheism or something of that sort. Yeah, if my experience is any indication, and admittedly I'm just one guy, but I talk to a lot of skeptics, the percentage I think is really high, Craig. I mean, the, most of the um, people that call in to me or that email me and, and get in contact with me, most of them that are the hardest cases, uh, I think have been hurt by the church or someone in the church. There's, there's an amazing number uh, of ex-Christians out there that are the loudest voices for anti-Christianity. And so, yeah, that I think it's, it should speak to us as Christians that we need to be uh, careful how we act, but also, I think, careful how we teach. A lot of these people come out of groups that were teaching some pretty weird things, and so they just reject the whole ball of wax, so to speak. Um, in, in rejecting something that is, admittedly, sort of silly, they just reject the whole thing. So, yeah, I, I would be interested to see those stats as well. Yeah, and it certainly, I think, would be very telling at the end of the day, as you point out, it's critically important to kind of keep that tucked in the back of our mind. Um, they're they're going to be looking at us, and they're going to be testing us, in a sense, to see whether or not we really believe in this faith that we talk about. Um, and, and, and toward that end, I guess it comes down to this issue of whether or not somebody has a former religious background with an axe to grind or comes at it from a particularly neutral uh, background. Nevertheless, there's somebody that we know Christ died for. And so now it's about getting in there. And I guess at, at the, the core initially, hearing more from them. I mean, again, we kind of tend to want to start this conversation by defending the faith. But I would imagine if we're going to kind of understand where we're going to go with all of this, isn't it more important to sort of draw them out as opposed to at the get go trying to present our case? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, that's key. I mean, if you go out and start to present your case, your case right away, inevitably you will miss the mark because you don't know what they believe. I mean, you're you're sort of shooting at a target 
that's not really there. You're talking to a person, uh, a person that you have in your mind, what you think they're like, that probably doesn't exist. And so, yeah, you really need to clarify that. In the same way, like I said, they're arguing with a person that they don't really know. I mean, they, they think they know what you believe. And so, yeah, you need there needs to be a lot of sharing up front, uh, sort of clarifying positions and, and getting to know each other, I think, uh, before all of the debating takes place. Now, that's not to say that you don't um, get into a, a kind of a debate. I mean, it, towards the end of my conversations or my relationships, you know, it, it could take several months. Like, when I talk about a conversation, I'm talking about potentially several conversations with a person. But towards the end of it, yeah, we do compare worldviews and we do um, debate. But yeah, I think that needs to come later on in the interaction. Let's um, hop on to the phones here and get some calls in. If you've just joined us, we're visiting tonight with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. He's got a new book out called How to Talk to a Skeptic. Go first to Palo Alto, and we'll say good evening to Lee. Hey, Lee, welcome. You're on KFAX. Thank you so much. I have a friend of mine who is an agnostic, but he started out as Catholic, and he's the kind of agnostic that's looking for a reason not to believe rather than seeking. And I could appreciate his intelligence, and we get along I've known him for a long time. He's very intelligent, except for when he talks about religion, in which case he doesn't make any sense at all. So I was curious, what is the gospel in a nutshell to keep my message very short? All right, good question. You want to tackle that, Donald? As far as the gospel in a nutshell, I tend to tell a quick story uh, that it's all about love, God created us for a relationship. We went chasing off after other things and other people that were not as uh, as valuable. And, and I tend to compare it to like a husband and a wife. A husband goes off chasing after something that's not as valuable, either alcohol, football, or a mistress. When he should be valuing and having a relationship with his wife, that's how I see the whole story of the world that we are a people who were made to love God and we've gone chasing off after things that just aren't objectively valuable. And when you do that, you live contrary to reality, then things don't go right. It's like trying to run your car on water. It's just not going to work. You can't live contrary to reality if you do things go wrong. And so I tend to focus on love and what it means to break relationship with God. And basically, I think all of the other doctrines of Christianity flow out from that basic uh, starting point. At least the good news in this case, Lee, is that you mentioned that he's an agnostic, so he's not sure, uh, which is sometimes easier than starting with uh, an atheist who's certain (laughs) that God doesn't exist. And I guess these days, that's more of a challenge. I mean, for uh, the early part of uh, the last couple of centuries, we've seen this major shift, certainly in the 1960s and 70s educationally and otherwise, where all of a sudden you've made that uh, transition from having to um, um, talk about our relationship uh, to God versus that God is. And I guess oftentimes we almost kind of have to use that as the starting point, don't we? I mean, how can we talk about uh, forgiveness and having offended a God if they don't even quite believe that a God exists, uh, Donald? 
Yeah, that's right. And that's why I generally start out, if someone says they're an agnostic, well, they're not, they don't believe nothing. <laughs> they do have a worldview. They do believe something about reality. And so I try to get them to explore that. How do you answer those big questions of life? How did we get here? Why are we here? What happens when we die? How then should we live? Everybody walks around with answers in their mind to those questions. They live according to something. And so I try to get them to explore that. You're, you're not agnostic about everything. And after they have sort of thought about that a little bit, then you can compare. All right, does, that, does those answers make sense? Does that seem to match up with the world as we know it? What you're suggesting here, too, as you mentioned uh, when we came back from the break, is not necessarily a singular conversation. This may be a multiplicity of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we kind of get that impression. We, we think this is a lot like, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this never happens. Of course it does. But the I met a man on the subway one day. I said, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? No, I don't. And that ensued into a following conversation. By the time we got to the next uh, train depot, bus stop, uh, taxi stand, you know, in, insert location here, uh, he had, had prayed the sinner's prayer. That does happen. Uh, but not as often as we would think. And generally, most of the people that we're going to run into that we're going to have an opportunity to share with are going to be people with whom we have some kind of ongoing contact, if not relationship. It's either the guy in the cubicle next door or the kid who delivers the newspaper or the young man who takes us out to the car every time we buy groceries and helps us bring the bags to the car, etc., etc. And so which case then, as you point out, and it dawns on me, uh, Donald, we did not come to these positions in life overnight and so we're not necessarily going to abandon them overnight so this is in a sense a process so if it doesn't go well the first time or that one certain conversation didn't quite end in the fashion in which you hoped it would there's always the next time isn't there that's an excellent point craig yeah we we tend to want to reduce the gospel to that elevator pitch right like yeah. give it to me in the 30 seconds we have and really i mean that's I mean, I get that, I understand that, but yeah, real life doesn't generally happen that way. <laughs> you you are building relationships with people. You're you're talking to them over time, and yeah, I, I totally agree that you, you should be able to um, spread this out and not force your apologetic argument, even or your or your evangelistic presentation into that elevator pitch necessarily. Our conversation with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson, the book "How to Talk to a Skeptic." And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our conversation tonight. Donald Johnson, my guest, the book is called How to Talk to a Skeptic. You know, at the end of the day, we talk about sometimes dealing with, with the, the hardline, almost professional skeptics, uh, Donald. Uh, I'm thinking of those in the class of uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, Bill Maher, even on that list. But it's interesting. I've heard some of them debated or some of the arguments that they put forward. And I've often thought to myself, you know, at the end of the day, it's not only Christians that are the ones that have to defend their views these guys come out with some pretty outlandish comments as well yeah no you're right they uh not only do they have to defend their worldview, and you're right i don't think they do a terribly good job of it and, and often they're not asked to which is interesting most of the time if you notice how those guys debate is they debate against christianity they're not usually asked to present a positive case for materialism or whatever it is they happen to hold. And, and that's one key, I think, to talking to, to either professional skeptics or the uh, uncle or the guy next door in the cubicle, is that they should be asked to 
have present their worldview to think about it probably i mean a lot of times people haven't thought about it and then defend that and that's a real key to having a constructive uh, conversation i think is that you have to think about what you believe in a positive way not just be anti-christian and a lot of them are anti-christian we talked prior to the break with the previous caller about this whole issue of, of, of the agnostic out there. And I guess in this day and age, what with uh, uh, recent discoveries related to the so-called God particle, um, irreducible design, uh, things like um, intelligent design, uh, that there's more and more scientific information out there, too, that also lends credence uh, to, to the so-called Genesis account. Does that also stand in our favor in terms of sharing our faith and making a case for the existence of God? Yeah, I think the evidence, wherever you find it, is always in the Christian's favor. Because if it's true, it's true. And Christianity happens to be true about all of the universe. So wherever we find truth, whether that's through scientific investigation or philosophy or psychology or wherever it is, that truth is if it's accurate if they're not just making stuff up or presenting false claims obviously but if it's accurate it's going to line up with the christian worldview and so yeah we never be never need to be afraid of new discoveries you know the truth wherever it's found is going to match up and and i think that's one key to having a good conversation is to not you know sometimes we present it as well i mean there's these facts over here but i just take on faith that Jesus is my Savior. And by that I mean I put my brain in my back pocket and I don't have to think about it anymore and I don't have any evidence for it, but I just believe. Well, no, that, that's not the Christian way, I don't think. God, God loves uh, presenting evidence to us, and he gives us plenty of it. Uh, yeah, at, the, at the end of the day, Christianity is not some irrational belief system that we just adopt totally by faith, whether or not there might be uh, some fact here or there. I mean, the ir- irony is, if we just take the time to do the research, um, we find all kinds of extra-biblical um, uh, information uh, from the archaeological accounts and historical accounts that lead credence to the teachings of what we learn from the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Every realm of, of discovery, I think, uh, should be embraced by the Christian. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, science is a good one. Archaeology is excellent, and it consistently confirms the biblical accounts. Whenever um, science is done right, and, and I guess that's a key. I mean, sometimes science is presented as a philosophy rather than a, a uh, mode of, of gathering knowledge. And so they say, well, science has disproven God. But what they mean by that is there is nothing that exists besides matter, and that's all we... Well, no, I mean, we can't accept that. But in general, yeah, every sort of of, uh, knowledge-gathering endeavor that humans do, it's going to line up with Christianity, and so we can embrace that. What do we do with comments uh, such as the person who says, well, I've done some studying of Christianity, and I find that there are uh, pagan myths and accounts of this sort that are made up out of the mystic world that seem to be similar to some things that I read in the Gospels, so why should I believe what the Bible says any more than a pagan myth? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's a very popular objection these days, and becoming more so, it seems. Uh, What I like to do is, first of all, clarify, all right, what parallel myth are you talking about? Let's let's look at the data and see what the facts actually are. And then some guys, they do just stop there, and, and that's fine. I mean, they try to disassociate Christianity from all the pagan myths. Actually, how, the, the approach I take is that 
I embrace a lot of the parallels that are out there. I say, yeah, you know what, there's, there's some parallels. I mean, uh, there's some pagan myths that are uh, similar in some respects to the Christian worldview. But I say that's actually to be expected, I think, if Christianity is true. Because according to Christianity, God is the creator of all. He put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then humanity spread out from there. So, and he's revealed himself, Romans 1 assures us, that no one is left without knowledge of God. So we have this general revelation to all people at all times. If that's true, it makes sense that when people try to explain reality through their myths, that there would actually be some parallels, that they're, if, they're, if they're interacting with an objective reality, and that is the God of the Bible, that there would be some similarities. And so I take sort of a C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton approach to this and say, those myths are a precursor, they're a shadow. It's not that Christianity took the stories from those myths, it's that those myths actually took their stories from Christianity. It's the other way around. And so Christianity is this, the actual story, the true story, the historical story, God in time and space. And the myths are the shadows that are uh, they, they come from that, I think. And so, yeah, I, I take sort of a, a broader approach to that, embrace the truths that we can embrace with people, and then try to show them that, well, Christianity is not like, it's not the same as those myths. I mean, it's history. Jesus appeared as a man in Galilee 2,000 years ago. So that that's, you know, a, a hard fact. What but, about those that take the dismissive approach to say, well, you know, I've, I've seen the way these Christians act. They behave fairly badly. I've seen the hypocrisy within Christianity, and uh, I don't go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. What of that argument? Yeah, that's a common one, and I think uh, on one hand, you can sort of uh, take a coldly logical approach and say, say you well, agree. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, you agree. Hey, uh, you know, we're all sinners, we're all hypocritical at some point, uh, but that's what Christianity teaches. Christianity doesn't teach that we're all perfect, and that, you know, if, if Christianity is true, then all people will be perfect. I mean, you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. We're sinners, saved by grace, and, and uh, being transformed into the likeness of Christ, but that's an ongoing process. And so, on one hand, it, I mean, logically, it's not a very sound argument. I think just sort of emotionally and psychologically, you want to just embrace that and say, you know what, I, I've hurt people, I've been hurt by people, I mean, that's how that's how life is, and I apologize if that works, you know, on behalf of my fellow Christians. But really, that doesn't speak to Jesus. I mean, certainly Jesus didn't teach us to do that, right? And Jesus wasn't like that. So let's talk about Jesus. Uh, and, and see if, if his message resonates. It's amazing when you think about it um, in the arena of Christian uh, apologetics, uh, how logical so much of this is if you just bring it back to the core issue of being relationship-centric. And as we mentioned a couple of segments ago, at the end of the day, that's really what this is all about anyway. You're not trying to create animosity. You're trying to build a relationship, and you wish to build a relationship to share your faith in the hopes that the person that you're sharing with will sometime or someday have a relationship with Jesus, too. And so when you look at it from that angle, then this becomes uh, far less about trying to win my point or beat you down or, uh, you know, be the winner of the forensic uh, team, but rather to simply love a person to the saving knowledge of Christ. The book, How to Talk to a Skeptic, published again by Bethany House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks to author Donald Johnson, also a Christian apologist, for being with us tonight and offering some great insights. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I've shared with you before my experiences in India. I always I found it fascinating to go into a Hindu temple for the very first time. And there's much pomp and circumstance, and you're required to take your shoes off and so on and so forth. And if you've never been in one, it's fascinating because a Hindu temple, at least the ones that we visited, was not a single altar to one god. But in fact, it is a, an almost large courtyard-like affair with multiple altars to multiple gods within the, the deist system of Hinduism. There's 33 million different gods. And it's amazing as you watch the priests that will do songs and incantations and writhe about on the floor and cover themselves in paint and in ashes and and go through all these machinations in an effort to try and reach out to God or a God to try to get that God's attention, to try to get that God's appeasement. And it really is heartbreaking from a Christian perspective to walk through there and see all of this. And you can, you can sense about you uh, the demonic presence all around and the depravity of man. And it's heartbreaking because all of this effort that goes forward and try to reach up to God and somehow connect with him and appease him. And yet we know from the story of the Bible that in reality God came down in fact God came down in such a fashion that he came down to get his hands dirty we're joined now by Johnny Moore who coincidentally is a pastor, advisor, professor of religion and vice president of prestigious Liberty University and author of a new book whose title initially was slightly off-putting to me and then when I got into the book, I realized, wow, this really spells it out. His new book is called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. And uh, Johnny, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks. I'm really glad to be with you. Your book is an interesting one because it paints a picture. And people sometimes talk about cheap grace and so forth. It, it, it paints a picture of the idea that in every respect, really and truly, God God came down, and as he did so, he, he, he rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, and in so doing, Jesus busted through this concophony of praise from every religion in the world, every idea of God in all of human history, that has been solely about man doing everything he can to get God's attention. And this Jesus, this dirty God, as I, as I called him in the book, decided that he was going to come down to planet Earth and he was going to come after us, despite the fact that we had made this mess. He invited himself into the mess that we made. He got dirty and he gave us the opportunity to become clean again. So that's why I, I called the book Dirty God. I wanted to reflect on the on the real beauty and transcendence of the grace of Jesus Christ. In our fallen nature, all of this is counterintuitive, isn't it? You know, it is. It, it's, you know, not natural that, that uh, you know, it, we, we aren't to other people the way God is to us in Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, we, we hold people accountable and we hold grudges and in, in the face of justice, God is just, 
but what he is is he's also a god a god of grace and so he wrote a story that has been the plot of every novel of any success and every movie that we watch you know everything through all of history is the same plot this plot of redemption over and over it's grace and grace is gotten and grace is given and jesus is the picture of that and i think it's time we resurrect the image of this of this idea of Jesus, the God who got dirty so the world could get clean. You know, we oftentimes will hear the picture of of grace as one that sort of paints God as being weak, that God is sort of capitulating to mankind. Well, if you can't live and abide by my laws and within the rules and regulations that I set forth, you know, even from the beginning, it wasn't a very long list. There weren't ten commandments. There was just one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we couldn't even manage one, let alone the ten that we were given through Moses. And so now the idea that God would say, okay, I'm going to come up with yet another plan, and it, it ultimately kind of in the perspective of some suggesting that, that it made God seem weak, but yet in your new book, Dirty God, you, you wonderfully paint the picture that, in fact, uh, the notion, as we said before, of God getting his hands dirty by coming down and taking on the form of mankind is anything but a sign of weakness. Yeah, you know, the, the, the easy thing to do would have been just to give us what we deserve. I mean, we were the ones that turned our, our back on God. But what did he do? I mean, this is this is the God who made everything. I mean, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the heir of all things. He spoke the whole world into existence. I mean, we cannot begin to fathom the wealth and the influence and the power of God. I mean, we can't even get that in our head. And yet here's God, Jesus, being born in a manger, living his first night in a feeding trough, the press release is sent to shepherds. I mean, he doesn't even have a place to put his head. He grows up in a village of 400 people called called Nazareth. And eventually, when he starts finally preaching this gospel that he's brought to the earth, what do they do to him? They run him out of his own village, his own friends and family. They run him out of his own village and try to throw him off of a cliff. I mean, this grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ, I mean, it, it took God's strength. Not, it's not a, a demonstration of weakness. It's a demonstration of a God that could suppress what we deserve in order to give us a second chance. And that's what he's been doing all through history. You know, my, my book, Dirty God, is really a book about the kindness of God, the kindness of God given to, the, uh, to us as recipients of grace and the kindness of God that we have the opportunity to give to others as distributors of it. And it is a story. It is at so many levels so uncomprehensible because I think we all have an idea about things that uh, that presidents or, or, or kings do or don't do. I mean, for example, the, the president does not drive himself anywhere. He has a security detail and a chauffeur. The president doesn't go into the kitchen and uh, start pulling things out of the refrigerator, uh, refrigerator and cook his own meals. He has a chef that does all of that. Uh, there are so many things that kings don't do. And yet all of a sudden we find this image of the king of kings coming down and doing things that we would never expect him to do and the people he hung out with i mean Mm -hmm. i think this is one of the most fascinating stories about about jesus is that he chose these disciples i mean he he chose these people and you look at their stories you know peter is is you know who speaks before he thinks and he's rough around the edges you've got doubting thomas who's who's you know, clearly like a pessimist. You've got James and John, and, and you've got you know, the sons of thunder. 
they called them, you, you've got all of these different personality types. These people always making mistakes. Jesus gets tired of them eventually and says, why are you being so dull? Why don't you just catch up, you know, with me? And, and I think that's part of the, the beauty of the story. I mean, Jesus came and he could have come as, as a king. I mean, he could have, he could have done it that way. He, he could have gone to Jerusalem or Rome. But instead, he goes to Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum, and he doesn't pick the best and brightest. He picks people that are a lot like us. Mm. And, and I think that's the amazing thing about all of this. I mean, he comes, Jesus arrives in a culture where Greco-Roman gods were known for their perfection in their temples. I mean, even their physical physiques were perfect. And Jesus arrives as a god that looks a little more like men, like everyday people, on the chance that everyday people, like the people listening right now, will feel that God cares about them, and He does. That's the image of Jesus, the dirty God. And what a what a poignant way in which to to get that point across. I mean, you, you, as you were talking about the picture of the disciples and this 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 ragtag group, most of whom most most decent fathers. Uh, that care about their daughters would 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 hardly allow your daughter to date any of these guys, let alone look at this group and say, as very God himself, I have selected you to take my message of reconciliation and restitution and forgiveness to an entire world. It just defies logic at every level, and I guess it's because at the end, it it it, it most necess- necessarily takes every aspect of man out of this equation. I mean, the whole key of grace is this: the unmerited favor that God has shown toward us, that no man should be able to boast in any of this process. And it really, it really, I guess, at the end of the day, defies our understanding, doesn't it? It, it, it sure does, and what it shows us is that God saw in these disciples, you know, Jesus saw in, in these followers of his what they didn't see in themselves. He didn't see them where they were. He, he saw where they could be, and he, he both preserved their personalities, but he also redeemed their personalities. And you see how he used the characteristics of these, these people in the, in the story of Christianity, you know, when you read it through the Bible. And one of the things that really believe the church needs to do is resurrect the, the human side of Jesus. You know, we, the church believes and has believed for, for centuries that Jesus was fully God, he was fully divine, and he was fully human. And it's through the human side of Jesus interacting with these people that we understand how grace plays itself out in everyday life. And what we discover very quickly is that the least likely people are the people that God uses in the most profound way in his story of bringing redemption to the earth. I mean, probably the person listening even to our conversation now, it feels like they're the person least likely to be used by God to do something is maybe the most likely person because, because our God is a God who takes joy giving grace to people and using them in ways they can't believe. So the doubting apostles, you know, Peter, who denies Jesus three times, ends up becoming the apostle that Jesus allows to preach the Pentecost sermon when thousands of people put their faith in him. So not, not only using not, where we are. not not only using the the least likely individuals, but but just as importantly and and I'll have you go into detail on this Johnny after the break to to help illustrate 
God's willingness to, to literally come down and get his hands dirty, and that is to reach out and touch into the lives of those that even other men would not do. There's a wonderful, I, I mentioned earlier about India, there's a wonderful illustration that you share at the, the start of the book, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, out of India, which parallels the story we see in Mark chapter 1, and we'll get to that aspect of our conversation. With us today, Pastor, Advisor, Professor of Religion, Vice President of Liberty University, he is Johnny Moore. We're talking about Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through, of course, uh, uh, Amazon.com. You can also get more information on Johnny's website at Johnny, J-O-N-N-I-E, Johnny Moore, with an E at the end there as well, dot O-R-G. Back to more of our conversation in a moment. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 